So Ben, or we as a community, should I say, um, started a series on, um, on Nehemiah. Just such a key book. I felt years ago this book of Nehemiah would be, actually, let me see when I, when I wrote my first notes on it. Um, it was the, the second of, of, I wrote these notes on the 2nd of January 2014. <clears throat> and um, I wrote this, I said, early last year I felt that there was something in Nehemiah that speaks to us as the church on the Gold Coast, in Australia, and in the West. The thing is, sorry, um, that's pretty much what I said, I think that's what I wrote there. That's my own little personal note. But um, in, in going through Nehemiah, I, I felt there was, like I've, I've somehow been blessed or cursed with this <laughs> um, thing that I, I, I like to stand and look at where the community of God is, is at. Um, we've got to be able to take um, true, accurate and reasonable assessments of where we stand. If, you, if, we, live, if we live in um, false optimism, well, nothing, get, nothing gets done. Do you know what I mean? If you, if you, if you live in false optimism, you, you never change anything. So there's, there's two things. There's, a cynic, there's cynicism, which is not good. But then there's, there's, a, there's a, um, a, critical, a, a critical view of something, which all of us should have healthy critical views. You know? It doesn't mean that you, you criticize, but you critique. And, and critiquing is good. It's taking an assessment of where things are at. In actual fact, when you look at um, the, the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, that's Jesus, our gracious, eternal loving king, critiquing his church. Okay? And he calls us out on some things. And a few weeks ago, or however long ago, it was last year actually, I spoke, on, I spoke out of Haggai, which was for me a prophetic message about the fact that the church, um, the temple of God at that time was lying, lying in ruins, and people were busy with their own paneled homes. And I took that away from the personal individual life, and I took it into what I would see as the Western church. Um, we've built, the Western church has built its paneled homes. So I hear people saying, oh, the church is doing better now than it ever was. And I, I just... I, for some reason, I can't stomach that. I actually just can't sit and go, amen, I agree. I don't believe we are. That's the truth. I just, I feel when I look around the world and I look back to the early church under intense persecution and we see what they achieved. I look to the great revivals that took place through history and, and, and whenever the church was doing well, there was, the society changed and it was, people, people heard about it. And I was chatting to Paul Tottiel the other day, and I said, man, if the I said to him, plain and simple, I said, Paul, the church is actually not doing well. And he said, I agree with you. I said, if we were doing well, we would, we would hear about it. Society would hear about it. I said, to him, I said to him, tell me one first world nation, one third world country, one um, country in Asia, uh, sorry, in Southeast Asia, not Southeast Asia, sorry, uh, in, in India subcontinent. I said, tell me one church where one country where you hear coming out of the media just these incredible stories of something happening and society being transformed. And he said, actually, I can't tell you any. I said, well, that's a problem because before social media, when things like Azusa Street and the Great Awakening and, and um, the Welsh Revival, when these things started, it was written about in newspapers. We've got social media. We should have instantaneous access to some of these things. The last greatest thing that we saw happen was the, um, 
uh, what, what started out of Toronto, and it's sort of swept across the world and changed along the journey. Um, we were part of, of experiencing a great move of God in Dubai, which for me was um, an incredible um, shaping of my life. Just watching God move unhindered by man. I, I, I was blown away by that. I wasn't, we, we, we had a small little church there in, of 200 people when I, when I joined. And by the time we left, through a move of God sovereignly, the church just grew in number of, of by people getting born again into the church. People getting healed, people getting set free, delivered, marriages restored, children coming through um, that were, had, had troubles, demons getting cast out of people. And, and not only there, but wherever we traveled, we began to see this presence of God manifesting. And then all of a sudden, you know, um, we moved chair and we didn't see it anymore. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating. And so I've looked around and gone, well, what's going on? And this book, Nehemiah, came to me and, and God actually said, churchianity is doing well. Men have built their empires well. They've built an organization well. They've built buildings well. They've built businesses well. But my church actually lies in ruins. And um, I began to see that in the book of Nehemiah. I began to see the rubble. And a man who Nehemiah stands, his name means uh, Jehovah Comforts, who is called by God to raise up a nation. And, and, and God chooses, always chooses a man in order to raise up a nation. We see that. Abraham, out of Abraham a nation. You see David coming in. Out of David, he, he rises up a nation. He actually joins Israel and Judah together. You see it happen time and time again. Every time through the book of Judges, God brings a man or a woman to come and lead the people. They raise up the nation. And the key is not for the individual person, but it's for that individual person told by God to raise up a nation. Nehemiah stands not for a man, but he stands for a nation. A nation of people who are seeing what God is showing them and then acting on it. And um, it comes with great opposition. If there is no opposition to what we are doing, then I question often, am I doing what God has asked me to do? Because the enemy is okay with good ideas. But he's not okay with a God idea. Because a God idea is dangerous to his kingdom. Okay? And men have good ideas. Churches are planted with good ideas. And great empires are built by men, which we call, I call, I call it churchianity. But Christianity is not healthy at the moment. But there is a remnant, as we see in Scripture, that God, Jesus himself, the Scripture says, God says, I will raise up a remnant from among the people. And I believe that we are poised, we are on the brink of, and, and, and I'm not going to say the word revival, because that's just another... Christian cliche that we tagged onto a couple years ago. When I first moved to Australia, everything was about revival. Revival this, revival that. Churches named themselves Revival House, Revival Church. Home groups were named Revival Houses. People had revival meetings, which was just extended worship times that really actually didn't start revival. They were just extended worship, really. And let's just call it what it is. And, and, um, Men have sought revival. We want revival. We want revival. But actually, I thought that that's probably not what we want. We don't want revival. What we're seeking is we're seeking God. We're seeking God and His kingdom coming. And, and, and through Him coming, there will be revival to the church. The church will revive. She will come back to life. And then we will transform the dead, which is those who are unsaved. So I think this is the key. Put your focus on the right thing because that's God's idea. 
And God gives this man, Nehemiah, an idea. He gives him an idea, and the idea is this. He la- it's more than an idea, actually. It's a conviction on his heart. The city of Jerusalem, the key city that, that hosts and, and, and held in their day the presence of God, which to me is a picture of the church, lies in ruins. Its walls are broken down, and it says, and its gates have been fallen over and destroyed by fire is what it says. So Nehemiah, this one whose name God comforts, obviously we heard from Ben last week, speaks to the king, he finds incredible favor, he gets to Jerusalem, he, he, he scouts the wall by night, quietly, looking around. He says he told no one what he was there to do. When I came out of this country the first time, do you know how many guys I met? Men, good hearts, I'm not criticizing their hearts, everyone's got a, a genuine heart to see things happen, um, but all of them would say th- something like this, and I still hear it, God sent me here, he's given me a vision for the city, for this, this, and this, to start revival. Nehemiah didn't do that, he didn't blow his own trumpet, he just came and he says, I didn't tell anyone what my God had sent me here to do. What I did is I walked around and I, and I looked at the city, and then I went to the people and I said to them, come, it's time to build, come let us build. And only then, he said, he told them, not what God had chosen him to do, but he said, I told them of the favor that God had given me with the king of um, Persia, of Babylon, which is Persia. He gave, he, he says, I told them of the favor that God had given me to build the city. He didn't blow his trumpet, I'm going to lead you all now. He was naturally raised up as a leader because he had vision. And people must have seen something, recognized it, and started following him. Let's pick it up in chapter 2. Where did Ben end off? I actually can't remember if he ended in chapter 1 or chapter 2. Can someone help me? Chapter 1. He ended chapter 1. So the, pretty much the end of chapter 1 says, effectively, he... he um, He speaks to them about, um, let me see what it is, that he comes, it says, the last, the last verse, in, uh, sorry, verse 11 says, O Lord, let your ears be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I think that's when he is actually speaking to the king. I think Ben ended at the end of chapter 2. Sorry, I'm getting it now as I'm reading through it. There is, yeah, just led me astray there. She's like going like this, chapter one, chapter one. In that astray. So the um he says the God so he comes against Sanbalat and Tobiah and a, and a guy by the name of Geshem. And I'll tell you their, their names in the moment, what they mean. But it says, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And these two guys, these three guys actually, Sambalat, and his name, Sambalat means, it means sin is vivified, is vivified. and that's, I know that's a big word, vivified, but um, it, it, it plainly means this, that sin is, sin is exalted. Now, when I say sin, everyone thinks, oh, the alcohol abuse and drunkenness and drug and, and sex before marriage. And remember we've spoken about this? That's the acts of the flesh. Let's put all that stuff aside now. When you hear me speak of sin, sin means this, to miss the mark in your affection. The, the, it means that you, we, our affections are towards God. In the Garden of Eden, man was to worship God and then from God to, to, to take his kingdom into all the earth, right? To expand. 
But they turn their affection away from God towards themselves. I will be like God. Oh, okay. And they turn to self-worship. So, so effectively for me, sin is um, when we turn our affection away from the most high towards anything else. Yourself, ultimately, it's yourself. Because if you follow anything, it's ultimately that you can gain something from it. That's generally what happens. So sin being vivified is, 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 or being elevated is his name means to take your affections away from God. Tobiah means Jehovah, Jehovah be praised or Jehovah is good. Now, Tobiah is an interesting character because some scholars say that he actually came from the lineage of the Hebrews. So, so he, he had a Hebrew lineage. Others say that he, he didn't have a Hebrew lineage. He came from Lot's family, which was Lot was Abraham's nephew. So he comes from that same line, but he was married to a Hebrew, to a woman who was Hebrew. And he was, and as you'll see through Nehemiah, he was actually quite well involved with the people of, with the Israelites. He was quite well, within well standing among them. You see him actually later on, which we won't get today, communicating with them. And I think that that's very interesting because you have people that out of their mouth, oh, God is good. We love you. We love the church. We love you as our leader. We love what, what the church stands for, what you're doing in the city. But behind the scenes, they're just also just criticizing you and, and, and trying to work manipulation for their own good. And I thought to myself, that's such an amazing picture of, of so many Christians that I personally have met. They, they just, out of one mouth, praise God, just like James says, but out of the same mouth, curse man. And through the, I mean, I've seen as a leader of, of, in, in churches and a leader of a church, I've, I've seen people who out of their mouth will tell you, Oh, God is so good. It's all about love. It's about the love of God and what he wants to do for us. Yet at the same time, they're, the, they're your biggest critics. They criticize you to your face, get offended, and, and leave the church. And you go, is, is, that, that's not what I see in Scripture. There's, there's no robustness. There's, there's this forked tongue which James talks about, praising God with the same mouth that you're cursing men with. And, and James calls it an abomination, effectively. It shouldn't be happening. So you've got Tobiah doing that. And you look around you, we used to... We used to go to other churches and, and want to build with people. And we'd say things to them like, hey, let's work together in this thing. Like, we're all together in the city. And they would say things, as I heard this morning um, as well, uh, one of the church leaders were approached, and they said, you know what? You do your thing, and we'll do our thing. Fantastic. That's family. That's community. That's the kingdom of God. All brothers and sisters working together for the greater good. You do your thing, and I'll do mine, because I don't want you taking my people, and I'm a bit insecure because I've got my little thing going here, and I don't want you coming in and around me because I'll do my thing. That's Tobiah. And then we used to hear, when we were in Dubai, we used to hear other churches saying the most horrific things about us because God was moving. And they'd say to people, and we'd hear, don't go to that church because the, they, they allow demonic spirits to come in there. You'll, you'll, you'll notice there's a lot of this weird stuff happening in there. There wasn't anything weird. People getting healed. That's what was going on. That's not, that is weird to, to, the, to the natural, right? Then there's this person called Geshem who's part of the, he's not as prominent as Sambalat and, and Tobiah, but he's, he's there. And Ge, Geshem means rain. It means rain, but there's two types of rain in the Bible. One, one is, the word, is the word Geshem, and the other one is the word Matar, M-A-T-A-R. Okay? And, and the Matar rain, is all, whenever you see that word used, it's used for the, the blessing of God rain. Geshem is used for the rain in season. 
in, in these months, it would rain in their seasons, and then they would harvest in their seasons. It, it, what Geshem speaks of when they speak about that type of rain is, is it's the natural cycle, the repetitive cycle. It rains in those seasons, it's dry, it rains, you harvest, it's, so it's dry, just the repetitive cycles. But then sometimes God would re- make it rain outside of season, and they would go, that's the matah, that's the blessing of God. It's the out-of-seasonal, pure, sovereign blessing of God coming. They don't use that word. They use the word for the repetitive cycle. And you see that. Why these oppositions come against the building. Number one, sin is elevated. Number two, it is those who are part of the family lineage who are the ones who will, with one mouth, say, praise God. And at the same time, they'll be stabbing you in your back, manipulating you and trying to bring you down for their own good. And number three, it's the repetitive cycles. The mundane, same old, same old churchianity circle that we go in. We attend church on Sunday. We listen to a sermon. Our kids go to ch- kids' ministry. We power ties and offerings. We have our tea and coffee. We go to work, and we just come back to the same cycle, but we never progress further forward. That are three items that will stop us, the church, building the true church. So let's pick up from chapter 3. I'm just trying to find my notes here. I didn't write them in a book, unfortunately. My iPad stopped working. Okay, here we go. Well, let's pick it up on sorry, verse 2, verse 17. Then, then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise, let us rise up and build. Good good verse now. They strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah 2 verse 19. But when Sanballat and Tobiah, and Geshem, heard of it, they jeered at us, and they despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? See, the enemy will always come to discourage you. What is this that you are doing? And then they throw this in. Will you rebel against the king? The very king that had just sent Nehemiah with favor, they try to use that going, are you now going to rebel against the king by trying to build the city? Nehemiah 2.20 says, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will rise and build. But you have no portion, nor right, nor claim in Jerusalem. I love how Nehemiah just takes a stand, and he goes, You can say what you want, but God, my God, will make us prosper. However, you actually won't have, you who elevates sin, you who praises God with one mouth but tries to bring us down with the other, and you who live in the repetitive cycles of mundaneness, happy to live in the contentment of your mediocrity and, and your consumerism, you will have no share in the, in, in the inheritance of the city if you do not come and build with us or if you oppose us. <clears throat> but Sanballat and Debiah were set on distracting them and stopping the works. Nehemiah 4, I'm just going to be jumping through because I've got to go through a number of chapters. So I'm, I'm, what I've done is I've actually, rather than reading line by, part line, I'm going to pull out a whole lot of different chapters and, and give you some points through those multiple chapters. The best way to get it is to actually read through the book of Nehemiah yourself. So write down some of the points, because I, I, otherwise we'll be here for more than four weeks. 
Okay, but, but what we're trying to get across to you is, there, there's, I said to Ben when we started, I said, what do you want to achieve through this sermon, through this series, sorry, and he told me what he wants to achieve, and so we've tailored it to sort of suit that, because I can preach on 15 different messages out of Nehemiah, and all of them will be different. Okay, so we're trying to achieve a certain flow here. Um, I hope you understand that, because the word is living and active, so it's always, it's always bringing some new form of life to us. Nehemiah 4 verse 1 to 3 says this, Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, because what happens now is that Nehemiah starts to build. So they actually begin building that wall. They start the process. Okay. So when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and he was greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and in the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they destroy, sorry, will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they receive, sorry, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Isn't that interesting? Will they revive these stones from the rubble and the ones that are burnt at that? I just love the way that God has the ability to take the broken and the beaten and the burnt of humanity, the drug addicts, the divorcees, the single mums, the parents who have lost their kids, the spouses that have lost their partner, those who have been outcast, those who are struggling in life. I love how God takes them and he can restore them and use them as living stones in his temple. It's just, it is just the mystery and the serenity and the, the sheer wisdom of God to do something that is so profound and so out of this world where society would go, those people are written off. Then God says, no, they're not. I'll use them to stand in front of people and preach. I'll use them to transform that family. I'll use them in that business to, to bring about a change. That's just incredible what God does. And I'm always blown away by those he uses. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside Sambalat, and he said to him, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up, he will break down their stones. That's pretty much just a jeer going, what these guys are building will amount to nothing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be weak and feeble, that even if a little fox jumps up onto it, it will crumble that wall down. Now, this is what I find interesting as well. Before I get into it, there's, before I get into the, the points that I've got now, um, Nehemiah, the, Nehemiah sees the wall. He, he hears, and the scriptures tell us that the walls are in ruin and the gates, the walls are broken down and the gates are, are destroyed even by fire. And Isaiah, Isaiah 60 says this, your walls will be salvation and your gates will be called praise. And when I read that the one time, I, I, just, I was completely blown away. I just went, what did Nehemiah come to restore? What is the restoration? Salvation and praise. And if you, if you look around the Western world today, let me, let me tell you, our message on what salvation truly is, the gospel, which we've done a whole series on, is actually very weak. It's, the theology of it is weak and poor. And what it actually does is it, is it creates a... I'm saying the weak and the, the weak and poor theology creates this. It, it creates a a watered down, consumer driven, emotionally hopped message that is sold to you as an individual as a product. 
Francis Chan, does anyone know Francis Chan? Right, so Fran does anyone not know Francis Chan? Yeah, okay, so go, go Google him and go see him. He, he was a leader in the reform circles of, of a megachurch. I'm talking five, 6,000 people, okay? One day, he stands up in front of these people, and he says, I'm burdened by God to say this to you. He goes, many of you come here on a Sunday, Sunday in, Sunday out. He goes, and you are entertained by a great worship team, a great band, he said, actually, singing some, some songs. He said, you listen to a well-put-together sermon. You enjoy communion and fellowship with each other over tea and coffee. He goes, but I, I want to say to you, he says, I love every one of you. God has put me as the pastor of this church. He no longer leads it. He actually stepped down, handed it over to go and start a small community of people that would rather do outreach because he actually went, what I'm building is, amount, is amounted to nothing. So he actually left and just took a handful of people with him. I think it was 10 or 12 people or 15 people. And they just started doing these little outreaches and then growing that, handing it over, and then multiplying that because he saw the value in rather discipling people than building empires. But he said this to them. He goes, but I want to say to you, I love you with all my heart. And he's a very gentle person. But you, he says, many of you are going to hell. He says, you actually haven't been born again. He says, you've had an emotional, you've had an emotional experience that made you cry, put up your hand, and repeat a few words that came out of my mouth and someone else's mouth who told you this in his prayer. And you come here and you have these emotional connections with, an, with, a, with a production that we put on, but you actually leave here and none of you know, know Jesus. He says, you don't have a real relationship with him. And he says, and I want you to have a relationship with Jesus. Now that takes, that's huge. But I tell you what, friends, that is the reality when we sell a gospel that is for you. The gospel is not about you. I told you that before. The gospel is about Jesus. He is the gospel. He is the good news. But I tell you what, it comes with laying down your life. You cannot receive Christ unless you lay down your life so that his life becomes yours. But if a message is sold to you that is for you, then I think that we've been sold a a message that is that is that is being produced for, for a consumer culture. Come at your will when you want, do as you please, get involved when you want to, how you can, within your time, but you don't have to give anything. We as the, the leaders of the community, we'll serve, pay your tithes, pay your offerings. We'll have people here that are committed to creating something that you can be a part of as and when you want to. If you want to partake of that, you can. If you don't, feel free not to. We're not going to force you. You know, This whole thing is your own personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, it is your personal relationship, but it can only be done in community. When a community of people walk side by side with each other, then we see the church rise. It's not individuals. And the second thing is praise. And this thing's been on my heart since a couple years ago. I just started looking. I, started, I stopped singing in church because I couldn't sing to the words that I could see up there because none of it was about God. It was all about us. His blessings for me and what I'm going to get out of him and oh, how this and for me and myself and ah. And, and we go, oh, but the Psalms were. Listen, yeah, the Psalms were never written to sing in a corporate worship. And the reason why I know that is because I've looked and studied the corporate worship in the tabernacles and the, and the synagogues and the temple. And the songs that David wrote were not public worship songs. They were songs that he wrote on a journey that he was going on. 
And so in my room at times, when I'm laying there and I'm going through trouble, I'm calling out to God, why is my life like this? Why am I facing so much trouble? Oh, but God, you. That's a personal, private thing. But when I come into a congregation, we come into a congregation to do one thing only, and that's to lift up praise and to lift up worship to God and God alone. And so that's why I love when Timmy starts singing songs like he does today, and there's nothing in there about me. It's all about Him. And so there's a restoration of that message of salvation, which is the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And number two, there's a restoration of praise and worship. That is the building, for me, of the walls. And that is the, the reestablishment of the gates, that your walls will be salvation. They protect, that true message holds you in. And you enter in through the gates. We enter through His thanksgiving and praise. You cannot enter the courts of God except by thanksgiving and praise. So when we sing about ourselves, why do you think the presence of God is not manifested? Because in spirit, we have not entered into anything. We are still outside singing about ourselves. A couple of weeks ago, I remember there was a moment where Ben came and spoke to me and said something. I said, hey, buddy, something's missing here. We need to connect. And he says, I feel that as well. And then all of a sudden, Sean just started singing up towards God. And it was in that song that you felt the healing of God come upon you, Mary. Remember that? That day that Mary shared her testimony. And I said to Ben, at the moment we lifted up towards God, I just felt that whole atmosphere around us shift. And then we get testimonies of healing. Why? Because we entered into the presence of God. And what's there? His kingdom rule and reign. What's there? No sickness, no disease, no depression. That makes sense, guys? For me, our restoration, if we want to revive the city of God, we want to rebuild, we need to make sure that we're building those walls in your own personal life as a community and we're building the gates. Build the gate. Make sure that you're, pray, you're, you're praising God. Make sure you're worshiping. Make, make sure you're thankful. There's so many things me and Gnomes have spoken about before where it's so easy sitting in traffic for so long, complaining, not having money at the end of the week, but you're going to get paid. I spoke about this before. And, and I've, I said to her, we, we actually need to stop complaining and just start to thank God. So in our time before dinner, we sit down and we pray every night before dinner. And we'll, 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 they, Naomi and Rio mock me because they reckon it's a sermon. And it is somewhat of a sermon, but I'm trying to get, I'm, I'm trying to get good theology out across the dinner table. But we, we're praying, we'll, we'll thank God, we'll thank Him for what we have, for everything. Thank you for this home, for each other, for the roof over our heads. Thank you that I even have a job, you have a job, that Naomi has a job, that Rio gets to go to a good school. Thank you for this blessing, thank you for that blessing, thank you for this person in our life, thank you for this, thank you for that. And then we begin to declare who He is. So we enter with thanksgiving and then we start praising who you are, what you've done. We call on His name, we give Him glory and honor, we speak about Jesus on the highest throne. They're starving. The stakes are cold. But you know what? I just, want to, I just want to do this because I want to set a culture in my home of us going into God's presence while we're enjoying a meal together and, and giving them the accolades of the Jewish name. Remember, it says that every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. It wasn't on a Sunday when we took the, the nip and the sip. It's every time you have a meal, do this in remembrance of me. Doing what? Declare who I am, what I've done, who I am on my throne, and that I shall return again. My prayers always end with this, and you shall return again in glory to consummate the ages. That's what it always ends with, and then we can eat dinner. 
I just want to get something right. And if it's that, then so be it. I just want to get, I just, I just want to feel God's presence. And I fail hopelessly all the time at work. I do. But at the same time, I'm never going to stop giving it all I've got to get there. So let's look at a couple things and then we'll close, right? So let's have a look and see what the enemy tries to do, how he works and what he tries to do. Number one, he tries to bring derision. Derision. They ridiculed and they mocked Nehemiah. Their response was threefold. No, sorry, his response was threefold. So they ridicule him, they mock him, they mock the building of it. What are you doing? It's not going not gonna to work. I mean, this thing will just break down. It's feeble. Are you guys going to try and you know, achieve and sacri- are you eventually going to sacrifice back to God here? Fully mock him. So this is Nehemiah's response. He puts his faith in God. The God of heaven, he says, the God of heaven will prosper us. He puts his faith into action. He says, therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. That's it. He puts, my faith is in God. Let's arise and let's build. Faith is not just standing there and going, God will do it. God will do it, but he'll do it through you. That's just the way he works. He, he, he chose mankind as his government on earth. That's what we've got to do. If we do nothing, nothing happens. You understand that? That's the reality. Nothing happens. It's just the way God did it. Why? Because that's how he sovereignly chose. We can ask him why one day, but right now we need to align with with what he wants us to do. And number two, he puts his adversaries in their place. He says, but you will have no no inheritance here. That's it. Our faith is in you, God. He will help us prosper. Let's get on with building the wall. And by the way, you guys will have no inheritance here. Number two, defiance. Nehemiah 4 verse 10 says this. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. And we do. We see it. It's a big task. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know nor see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near, near them came from all directions and said to us ten times. So this is now they're hounding them. You must return to us. This is so so. So clear. What happens is the enemy says, we're going to go and attack them. We, we're going to bring them down. We're going to break them. Now, I've had that threat on my life before by Satan himself. If you preach this message, I will take out your family. Okay. That's okay. Because to die is gain. So what have we got to lose? Let's just give it a go. You know what I mean? And, and, and yes, he, my, my wife died. And someone said to me the one day, if you die as a Christian, you'd actually die as a martyr. That's it. He says, we don't have people coming and chopping our heads off. If we're in the Middle East, that could happen to us, right? But in Western con- context, we don't. So there's other things that come in there. If you die preaching the gospel for Jesus, advancing his kingdom, giving your life for him and his glory, you die as a martyr. Know that. I don't know what, if that makes sense to you. For me, that's a, I believe that. I believe that we, we, we die as martyrs. You know, Unless I've shriveled up and, and given myself to something else, then I don't. But, um, so anyway, the families, of these, so the families from around the area who were still living a bit scattered but in, Jerusalem, in Israel, sorry, heard these threats, which, which remember this, Tob- Sambalat, Tobias, and Geshem, they, were, they, they, they sowed a lot of seed among the people. 
openly. They, they knew, they lived in that area, that region, they lived in that, in that place around the, the broken city. And so they sowed a lot of garbage into people. And so they would have sent messages going, we're going to kill those Jews that are building. We're going to kill them. So their families did what any family would do. Oh, no, 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 you must come. Come back to us. It's safer here. Come back to the farmlands. Come back to where we are. These guys are going to come and attack you. They came there 10 times over telling them, return to us rather. It's not good for you. Don't do this. Now, I remember when we moved to the Middle East and I was told by my family, um, we don't think it's a good idea that you go there to go and help a man plant a church. Why? They don't like it over there. And, and so what do you want me to do about that? You know, that, that, That's the reality. I was told that by my parents that I must be careful making that decision because it's not a safe place for me to go. Um, going into Mozambique, I was told, be careful. It's not a safe place to go. But we went. I went to Pakistan, which is not a safe place to go. We, had to be, we, we got walked through the streets. I was telling Naomi the one time, walked through the streets by men with AK-47s to go and preach to 400 people. And God broke in. There was just demons coming out of people. People were getting healed. People were standing and worshiping. The Holy Spirit was just moving upon people. And we, we had to get taken through the streets and then removed from that meeting by these armed men into a car and driven down the streets because Muslims were coming because they had heard the praise and they said, we're coming back here with our friends. So they came and called us and said, we need to get you out of here right now because stuff's going to go down. We're not sure what, but you need to come out. But we'd already been there for two and a half hours. We'd already seen God move. And um, I often think to myself, I may never have returned from that journey. But they came and said, come back. Come back to us. And I looked. <clears throat> sorry. So in the lowest parts of the spaces behind the walls and the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the, to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers. I love that. For your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. The antagon the, these antagonists were indignant and they mocked the Jews and conspired to attack them and to, conf and to create confusion. Nehemiah's reaction was to pray to give the problem over to God and kept on working. I love what he says there, guys. Remember God. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. I love that. He, so he gives this. He goes, remember God. He is great and awesome. And he doesn't say, now God will just fight for you. He goes, now fight for your brothers. There's a, there's a, there's a togetherness there. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons. Fight for your daughters and fight for your wives. Simple as that. Put it into action. There's no point in running away, going back to the farm. You'll be safe there, yes. However, what I enjoy about Nehemiah is he was always, for him, it wasn't only about building it now, but he was also fighting for their sons and daughters. He was looking forward to another generation, to producing something that the, I think in our society today, we've lost the understanding of fighting battles now and building something now for other generations. Because in our society, and a lot of the, a lot of the more mature folks, <clears throat> those who have been around for longer than some of us, all of you understood something of another generation to come. 
I think that a lot of young people have missed like up more, more from the Gen X generation. Everything is about immediate gratification. It's about me, what I can receive, what I can get. What I'm enjoying about millennials and not the teenagers. Teenagers are different. It's just they're, 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 they're their own species. Okay? <laughs> teenagers are all about me, myself, and I, but they're still part of the millennial generation. However, there's millennials that are older. They've, they've grown through the teenage years. Okay, So that's what I'm talking about. They actually want to um, be involved in changing society. I've noticed that about them. There's a, there's a big drive to change society. And I read, do you have, a few, do you have 10 minutes left? Okay. Hey, where are we all going? Eh? It's a long weekend. Come on, it's a long weekend. That's, that's, that's. But I read, I read, I read in a, on an airplane a couple years back, um, <clears throat> Time Magazine was. They did this little write-up about the boomer generation and the Gen Xs who were millionaires and billionaires and what they, how they lived. And it was all about acquiring a property, then another property. They lived in a big house. They had mo- a, a boat. They had a holiday house share. They had a property portfolio that they, they would have where they rented out. They'd, it was all about building this quite a big empire. And the good part about that is they wanted to leave that for the next generation, for their, their kids, right? Which is what I'm saying. There was this, we want to build for another generation. Then these Gen Xs came in, and, and what they did is they stepped into something they hadn't fought for. And, and so they squandered it. They just they lived in the luxuries of it, and they just grabbed and me, and I need for me, and more and more. And, and they never produced much more for the next generation. They, it was all about us living in what we hadn't fought for. They, they didn't know the value of what they had. And then this millennial come in where they said, the millionaires and the billionaires of the millennial generation live in very basic homes. They don't live in big mansions uh, on the hills and you know, on the beaches. They, they live in very, very normal homes. Um, they might have another holiday house somewhere, um, but a lot of them are putting their money and time into transforming societies. They're coming up with ideas and engineering ideas, and, and they're quite intuitive into what can I do to help society? What can I do to help the poor in America? What can I do to change the status of a village that has no water in Africa? And so they're actually giving their money into programs and themselves starting up these programs to go in and change the, 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 the status of society around them, be, be it an African village where they build a well, build some homes, start a school, start an orphanage, do a food program, help them to, to actually better their lives, or whether it's the inner cities of New York where they're going around and helping and coming up with programs for the poor, trying to get people off the streets, trying to create a business opportunity where homeless people or veterans can come and work. That generation is what stands before us. I felt prophetically one day that that is the generation that this is going to be for, that they are, put it this way, the kingdom is all about transforming those around us. That's what it's all there for. It's to transform. What was Adam and Eve's job? Take this and multiply it. So what I feel is going to happen is that it's that generation that understand this thing of salvation and worship of God that are going to change society for the better, for the kingdom. That's what I think. Not the multimillionaire. That can be. You can be a millionaire, a billionaire, but the everyday person with that thought. And I've, I've realized that millennials don't want to be spoken at. They don't want to be taught at. They don't want to be lectured. They want to be engaged in conversation. Questions and answers. Look at TED Talk. Why is TED Talk such a big thing? Because it touches on real issues that can be translated into real life 
and there's questions and answers where people can feel involved in the conversation. And number two, they don't want to sit around and hear about it. They want to be involved in it. Let's talk. Let's discuss. Let's come up with a game plan. But give us something to do. Give us something to do. I want to go to an orphanage and help there. I want to go and do this. I want to, I want to go and feed the poor. I want to go on a mission trip. I want to go and do this. They don't want to sit around in an air-conditioned room and then just hear about it and go, that was fantastic. Great message. I feel intellectually stirred. Fantastic. We'll see you next week. They want to be involved. This is what I'm seeing here through Nehemiah. I'm going, this generation, it can be a Nehemiah generation. A generation will actually say, hey, let's build this thing. Let's not sit around talking about it. Let's actually build it. Does that make sense? Five minutes left. Number two, distraction. Nehemiah's enemies persistently said to him, come, let us meet together. Come down to the villages, to the plains. But their motives were less than honorable. They sought to harm Nehemiah. They wanted to harm him. Nehemiah's response was this, I'm doing a great work. I cannot come down and meet with you. Remember, they said, come, let's have a meal together. Remember, I don't know if you, if you read through it, you'll see Tobias and them say, come down here to us. Come and let's sit and talk and have a meal with us. And Nehemiah goes, I actually can't come down there to you. He goes, why should I leave the work that God's asked me to do, to come down there and just have a chat? He saw through the manipulation. It was all a load of garbage. It was all just a, a, a way and a ploy to bring about distraction on him. Why should the work cease while I leave it to come down to you? We must never let distraction distract us from God, from his work nor his truth. This, the next thing is defamation. So they bring about defamation to his name. We see this in Nehemiah 6 verse 5 to 9. In the same way that Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servants to me with an open letter in his hand. So Sambalat so, so sends an open letter to Nehemiah. Now that is very manipulative because in those days you would seal a letter with wax now, when it was sealed with wax, the seal could not be broken except by the one it was addressed to. When you sent an open letter, it's, it's, we get it today, you see an open letter in the newspaper, the open letter to the prime minister. That letter is not there for the benefit of the prime minister. The letter is there for the benefit of the people. It's a manipulative way of getting what you want. So what happens is you send an open letter, and, it get, and what would happen is the messenger would go from town to town, and they would actually allow people to read the letter the leaders of those towns, the elders in those towns, whatever it was, read the letter. And the letter was all addressed to Nehemiah, trying to, in the letter, accuse him of doing things against the king, against the people. And what it would do is it, it, was, it, was, it, was, um, it was there to, to try and get people to go in the, in the community, go, hey, he is doing a bad thing. Nehemiah is actually to try and turn their minds and defame the character of Nehemiah, turn the minds of the people towards defamation. Highly manipulative. It was, not, it was not private. There is no doubt this was meant to malign, slander, and trouble Nehemiah. But Nehemiah refusing, he refuses to be intimidated. I love the, the, the sheer stubbornness of this man. And, 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 his, and his, he was stubborn in a way that he would not allow these things to get in his way. He, he just kept his, his, his face towards God and his, and his shoulder to the grindstone. He refused to be intimidated. He just corrected the misinformation and he prayed to God for strength. And again, the work continued uninterrupted. I love Nehemiah's response to defamation. He just prays to God and carries on working. That's, 
How many of us want to fight? I want to fight sometimes. <laughs> How many say, I'm, li- I'm like that. I'm like, let's go. Let's do this thing. You want to say something? We can have it out. And, and I've had to just calm myself down a few times and go, you know what? This is not going to help me or anybody else. Best just to leave it to, to God. There's one man that I've seen do that successfully, and he's just been promoted to heaven. That's Mark. Like, Mark, I've heard people say the most terrific things about him, and you know what he does? He just blesses them. He does. He, he just blesses them. So when I was in his church, he would do that, and I would get so frustrated at the fact that he blessed them. I, was, I used to say, let me go and chop off their right ear. I, I, I was that guy. I was, he was like, just calm down. We're not calling down fire on these people now. That was me and, and, and one, other, one other guy. We used to get so excited. We were, like, we were trying to defend Mark, and he just goes, you know what? Bless them. Bless them as they go. And he would honor them publicly, frustratingly so. But I tell you, I've learned. I've learned from it. It works. Because you looked at his memorial, how many people said a, a single bad, they said, mate, this guy forgave, forgave and forgave and forgave. And I went, wow, actually, that's something that I would aspire to. Hopelessly, I failed at times, but it, it's still an aspiration. The next thing is deception. In, in Nehemiah 6, verse 10 to 14, we see this, that Tobiah and Sambalat hire a false prophet to lead Nehemiah into, into sin, into worshiping, um, into, into turning his affection away from God, put it that way, um, and, to, and also to compromise his reputation. They said to him, the, effectively the letter says to him, you must flee, come, God wants you to come into the, into the inner sanctuary. And Nehemiah realizes if I go into the inner sanctuary, it'll be against the, word, the, the, the law of God. I cannot enter into that place. And so Nehemiah refuses to go. The enemy will always do this. He will bring a false prophetic word to get you to believe. Now, how did Nehemiah... To, we'll get, he'll, send us, he'll send a false prophetic word that will, try to, that will get you to believe that that's what God's saying. And then you'll do something that's outside of the will and purpose of God. And, and you go, well, but how would we know? How would we know? This is how I know from what I see in Nehemiah, that Nehemiah's relationship with, with God, he was so in tune and in step with him that he knew straight away, God is not asking me to do that. that, that if I was to do that, that, God would not ask me to step outside of his law. Was Nehemiah a eunuch? I didn't know that. Ah, yes. See, you learn something every day. You do like popcorn preachers at the table, as we call it. I didn't know that, that Nehemiah was, it makes absolute sense. If he was a cupbearer, he wasn't allowed to fornicate with the, um, the concubines, so they would have Being, being a Jew, he would have been circumcised, right? And then they were like, listen, just take, take it all away. I mean, that's just, that's just tragic. Uh, it's like, I've already, I've already had that. But now we're going to just go a little bit further. Actual fact, Paul speaks of that. He goes, I wish they would go the whole way and just castrate themselves. I'm so sick and tired of them bringing the law and just cut it all off, mate. 
So he, he, deception, he doesn't, he doesn't succumb to deception because he knew who God was and he knew God's law and he knew God's ways and he knew that God, through relationship with God, would not ask him to do something. He would not send a prophet to tell him to step out of line with God's word. That's effectively it. For me, I hear prophetic words often. The first thing I do is I want to align them with what I know from God. What do I know? And sometimes I've, there's been times I've gone, in, I haven't called it out, but I've just gone, that's not right. What that person said is not in line with God's word. Dissension, the next one. I've got, one more, I've got two more, so this one, another one, and then we can go. Dissension, it's in Nehemiah 6, verse 16. Tobiah was in alliance with the nobles of Judah, and he used his tars with them to create dissension in the ranks. So he would, just, he would um, as I said earlier, he would just speak to the people and, and, and um, bring about dissension. When the devil could not deter the efforts of the early church with persecution, he turned to internal strife. That's, how, that's the best way the enemy can do it is get them to turn against each other. Get them to compete with each other. Now, it's, now, now when you're building a family, it's very, very different because the family exists for the purpose of the family to move forward. They, they, they want to stick together. Dissension, when you build a business, you're in competition with somebody else because I need business. If you build two coffee shops next to one another, they are not there to better serve the community. They are there to get as many of each other's customers as they can. And dissension comes. You know what they're talking about then? Oh, I heard that they had a cockroach in their one meal. I heard that you know, their coffee beans are not as fresh as the coffee beans we get. Do you know what I'm saying? We've had so many customers that have left that and come to us. They said they just didn't get good service there. They didn't, that, that kind of stuff happens. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> oh, I want to say it so badly. That's the church, man. We do that. Oh, no, you know, must be careful of the message they preach there. I've heard there's a few things. We've had a few people come out of there that said this and this and this. Watch out for them because they actually mismanage the finances. Watch out for this because they do that. Oh, watch out because I've heard that people fall over in that church, and I've heard of the Kondalini spirit, and that means that, you know, this happens, and somebody, somebody starts laughing because, you know, you can't have the joy of the Lord in the church. You know what I'm saying? Even when God himself laughs. You know what I mean? So all these things happen. They did it to Jesus. It's by the spirit of Beelzebub that he heals and casts out demons. And Jesus, and you know, the very ones who said a, 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 um, what's it, a house divided against itself can't stand. So why would the devil cast out the devil? <laughs> you know I mean? But that's what you hear. We've had that against us. And remember that one time, Jenny, at, at Crossing Point, when this man comes in. So I have a sermon on healing. On healing in the Bible. This man comes in. He's got a Bible. I don't know how that man's Bible was this thick. It, I think he had the original Hebrew, Greek, and the English Bible in there. And it was this big old thing. And he comes in and he came in. Remember that time? He came in so, oh, bless you, brother. Bless you. And he stood there. And I was at the back of the hall. Jenny came and said, come, just leave. Let's go inside. And I said, no, it's okay. I'll answer this guy's questions. And he comes and he says to me, him and his wife stand next to me, and they look like this perfect Christian couple. And he opens up his, the Bible in front of me, and he, and he just starts hammering me. I've never met him in my life before. Just starts hammering me about how a demonic it is to speak about healing in the church, and God heals. And he said, man, it's unbe-. And he starts, so I start questioning him. I said, show me that in the Bible. And he's like, um, he's trying to page through it. And then I said, oh, go to this book here. And I open, and I open the Bible up on, in his hands. I said, read that. No, no, but that's wrong, and you're misinterpreting. I said, well, it's quite clear over there. And eventually, 
worship starts without me. And this man's over there, and I said to him, I said to him, brother, I want to thank you for coming here today. I said, I was about to preach. I was about to preach on healing in the church. And I want to pray for some sick people. And you stepped in here today, and you've confirmed that that's exactly what I need to preach on. Because the Satan will not send somebody here unless he knew that today something was going to happen. Be blessed. I don't think this is going to be the right church for you. And I walked straight through the doors, worshipped, and we rocked the place. Worship was phenomenal. God was honored. People got healed in that meeting. Remember, it was just spectacular. And after I went, that's just amazing. God, you know, the enemy sent a messenger of light to come in there with his big Bible and he tried to just convince me how wrong I was. He tried to bring this dissension into me. And he tried to bring this fear and intimidation into me. And he had all these flowery words until it got disarmed by this, this little ragamuffin standing there who hadn't been to seminary. And he said, I've been to this seminary and that seminary. And I've got this degree in theology. And I just went, man, thank you so much, Satan. You've just confirmed what we're here for. Do you remember that meeting? It was, it was funny. That's God. And debasement. Here's the last one. Uh, verse 1348. Uh, the term debase means to make lower in value, quality, character, dignity, and to cheapen somebody. When Tobiah was permitted to reside in the temple, and we'll speak about that in a few weeks to come. I just wanted to touch on it very briefly. When Nehemiah had left, Tobiah was permitted to live inside the temple. It brought a debasement to the temple because Nehemiah, I mean, because, because Tobiah came in there and he brought about a, a, he brought an Ammonite way into God's house. They, they began to water down. The culture around them began to infiltrate once again. Once Nehemiah had left and rebuilt, the, the culture around them began to infiltrate back into the city. So much so that it infiltrated back into the temple itself. And because of that, the temple was then debased. And things started going all haywire. I'll tell you again, and I'll tell you again, and I'll tell you again. When we allow the culture that is around us to infiltrate into us. It brings the walls down and it burns the gates. And we are not here to be culturally relevant because Jesus fits into every culture, in every country, over all time and space. If you bring Jesus, the culture must bow its knee to Him. Not to, the old, to Him. Not to the old way of doing church, to Jesus. Not to the Jewish way of living, to Jesus. Not to the Gentile way of living, to Jesus. And that can, be fit, that can fit into every culture. You can take Jesus into Africa a thousand years ago, and it's 100%, he is 100% relevant. You can bring him into Australia in 2019, and he is absolutely relevant. For me, that's through those few chapters Chapter, effectively chapter 3 to 7 is where I've really spent most of my time here. And you need to go and read it for yourselves. Like I said, it will take us weeks and weeks and weeks if we had to just read line upon line. But that's the whole point. My job is not to read you scripture line upon line. It's to present something to you and for you to go and to look it up and to search out that truth. But those key elements there is the areas where the enemy comes in to break down salvation and to turn our affection away from God. Praise. And to get us to turn our affections to other things, to become intimidated, whatever it looks like, that's what his job is to do. If we succumb to those things, what happens is we end up not building what God wants us to build. And again, friends, we just see a heap of rubble. 
But I, I don't think it, I, I think that the heap of rubble has been there for a long time. The fancy tinfoil buildings that are up now, just go and put your finger and you'll see how easy it is to break through tinfoil. Just poke a hole in it. Tinfoil is alifoil, sorry. My South Africanism coming out there. It might be gold, it might be spray painted, might have little fancy things on it, might have, uh, what's that funny stuff the kids use? Glitter? Might have all of that on it. But I tell you what, friends, if you touch it, it will fall down. When persecution, not if, when persecution comes, Watch how quickly the alifoil buildings fall down. Watch how quickly the consumer Christians flee and go back to the safety of their families' homes and they remove themselves from fighting the battle because it's too hard. Because like Francis Chan said, many don't know Jesus. But when you know him, your whole life is given to him. Amen? Thank you for listening. I did go a bit over. I'm sorry about that. I, I wanted to honor time, but I also wanted to get across the message that at least you know, Ben can carry on next week. So why don't we just pray? Father, thank you for your incredible mercy and grace. We know that you are the most high God. You are a God above all other gods. You sit on the throne. You are the creator, the great I am. You are the ancient of days. You are everlasting Father. You are the star breather. You are the lover of our souls, our strength. You are our courage, our refuge. You are a shield. You keep us under your wings. You are the savior of our souls. You are true life itself. And you have breathed that life into us. Thank you that you sent your son to show the way, to wash us clean, to raise us back into life that's found in you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that you give so freely to us, that you have made us one with yourself, that we are found in you, immovable, inseparable, that you will never leave us, you will never reject us, never forsake us. You have a good purpose and a plan for us as individuals, but you have a great purpose and a plan for us as a community. Lord, as we go through this book, we know that this is there for us to learn from. We see your servant Nehemiah and we see how we can be a part of that journey. The journey of being those who work with you to rebuild salvation, to rebuild praise, to, to build a house that you will come and pour out your spirit upon and, and use us to impact those around us. I pray that our hearts, Lord, would be transformed, would be strengthened and would have great courage to do this. We thank you, Jesus, that you sit on the throne. Your kingdom is, is unshakable. To the increase of your government and your peace, there will be no end. And you shall return in glory where you will make all things new, where we shall be raised back to life and given our glorified bodies in you. Until that day, until that day, Lord, we here on earth will govern in you on your behalf to bring your kingdom into our family, into our businesses, into this community church, into the society around us as best we can so that you are honored and praised and worshiped among the people. In your name, we say, let it be done. Amen.